Hello, my name is Anna, and if you're into scary stories and creepy real-life happenings, then I think you will love my podcast. Let me tell you a scary story. Join me every week as I read to you stories of the paranormal that actually happen to ordinary people. These are things that can't be explained and don't always make much sense, and they are sure to intrigue and to give you the shivers. So join me on your favourite podcast listening platform and let me tell you a scary story. homegrown. Join us as we take a drive down dusty back roads and discover the obscure and dark history of this country, human and otherwise, that lurk in your backyard. Episode 46, Vermont. We started off with some weird Vermont facts. James tells a story of a man who tried to mail himself home. Then we get into the strange tale of the Bennington Triangle and the Long Trail Disappearances. I'm your host, Chris. Joining me, as always, is my good buddy, James. James, how are you, sir? My friend, I am doing well. Uh, It is great to be back in the studio with you, and I want to congratulate you because the last time we recorded, you were not a daddy. No. You are now officially a daddy. Congratulations, brother man, and I I am so happy for you, and it's been a nice couple weeks off. I hope you guys have settled in. Hope everything's good with the kid. Just how's things going anyway? How y'all settle in being new parents? Man, it is... It is... A lot, let me tell you. Yeah, we. Um, <laughs> so last time, we, last time we talked and we recorded, we, we I think we had like three weeks left till till, till her due date. Yeah, and then it just popped up all of a sudden two weeks early, so we weren't, weren't prepared for that. Uh, and then we, uh, yeah, then we had a baby, and then at that point, since since she was two weeks early, there was a lot of um stuff to work on with like her weight and everything. And so, I mean, it just got so busy and time got away that next thing I know, it's like a month later and, and we're just now getting to record, but it's been going good. It's been going good. She's doing good. She's healthy. And people can wait. I mean, life happens. I mean, I'm shopping for a house. You've got a new baby. So we both got stuff going on. Yeah. We do this for free. We thank everybody for their patience, of course. Absolutely. And appreciate the support. But yeah, we had some life things happening here. So but it's good to be back at it. But I will say this. Um, I have missed recording. I've missed doing all this. So I'm glad that we're back. Uh, it's it's been, it's been too long. I'm glad to get into this to some new stuff that I haven't uh, learned about before. 
and I'm, I'm glad to be doing this with you again. Uh, starting yes. next next month in May, I'm excited because we will actually be doing in studio recording again. Now that everything's yes, starting to, to level out a bit, so I'm excited about that. But uh, yeah, otherwise it's been good, man. And, and I know the house hunting's been uh, kind of up and down for you, but uh, there's some hope in the future for that. Indeed, there is. And like I said, once I do that, I'll be building a studio there as well. So we'll have tandem studios, and we'll have you know we can record one place or the other. Just depends. Doesn't matter. We just keep on rocking and rolling, rocking doing and roll. our thing. That's man. right, doing our thing. All right, man. Well, before we get into everything, let's uh, let's start off with some. Oh, you know, actually, I do want to I do want to let people know that uh, it's been a month since we recorded. We we haven't had any real episodes come out, but. We do have the last episode we have come out is the crossover we did with Beyond Terrestrial. Yep, our boys uh, Dan and Lee. Dan and Lee, excellent. It's, and it's then we a, had uh, uh, Mike join us as well. Yeah, and it's a uh, debate over the uh, validity of Mr. Um, Bob Lazar and his claims. Yes. Um, based on the, the the most recent Bob Lazar documentary that came out, uh, myself and Lee take the stance of the skeptics. James and Mike take the stance of the believers. And it's a very fun episode. Uh, I listened to it like last week, and I enjoyed it. Um, so go check it out. That's on our on our uh, anywhere you can find it. Anywhere um, our feeds are available. So go check that out. It's a great episode. And go check out uh, Dan and Lee at their podcast Beyond Terrestrial. That's a great podcast as well. They are fantastic gentlemen, and they are uh, intelligent, well spoken gentlemen. They have good subject matter. They do. They're they're great. They these guys are great. And I love working with them. I know we've we've only done a couple with them so far, but I plan, you know, we definitely plan on doing more with them in the future, of course. So. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, I want to let people know that we still have our Patreon going on. Yes, we do. Patreon.com forward slash. State of fear. State of fear. <laughs> That's right. It's been a while. We're, we're yep. rusty. We're getting there. Yeah, we're rusty. Yep. But, squeak, um, squeak. Oil, yeah. oil. <laughs> yeah, he's 10, man. But uh, yes, we do have our three levels. We have the Hitchhiker, which is our $1 level. Uh, then our better level, our, our backseat driver, which is $5. And then we have Shotgun at $10. Each level, of course, has progressively more rewards. You get access to ad-free episodes. You get ad, you know, access to our bloopers, which God knows there's plenty of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're just looking for support. If you guys want to support the show, just go ahead and go there. Sign up. We'd appreciate it. Uh, you'll get an online shout out, for, of course, uh, you know, an actual thank you and stuff like that. And uh, the money all goes to the show. Everything we do, it goes back to, you know, towards the expenses of doing the show. You know, like if we're going to be doing some trips to do some uh, videos and some other exploratory things. Yeah. And also go uh, go check out our YouTube. Um, I finally have been caught up on that, thankfully. So all of our episodes are available on YouTube. So yes, if, if you, you like get there. Absolutely. Uh, like the episode, subscribe, give us Leave comments. Us. We, we've actually had some pretty cool comments um, on, on the YouTube. Um, we've had some not cool comments. Like I think there was, I forget which episode it was, but we, um, part of our state facts were, we're talking about the, one of them, Krispy Kreme is from one of the states. And somebody commented and said that they got about five minutes into our donut discussion and stopped listening because they couldn't take it. I'm like, well, you're an idiot then. Well, that, well, let's be honest. The the donut was just one of the little state facts that we discussed. Yeah. We talked about it for maybe a minute. Maybe there two or three no at the most. Because we talked so, about our favorite donuts, but it's not very. It's not. It's not a long. They got maybe five minutes in and, and they quit because they're quitters. But that's okay. You know, comment one way or the other. That's fine. But our format is our format. We are not changing for anybody. But my favorite comments are from the Massage Maniac episode 
that we had, we actually had a couple people who personally knew the guy. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. That commented. I remember seeing that. Yes. Yeah. So it is really cool to see people who have actual uh, um, uh, experiences with our topics comments. So yeah, so that's great. I, I love it. I love the format. Uh, so they're all up there. They're all, it's all up there ready to go. So just, if you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, go check out our podcast, our, um, our YouTube page, Data Fear, and they're all up there. So yeah, so go check that out as well. Rock and roll. All right, well, let's get into some weird facts real quick um, for Mr. Vermont, or Mr. Vermont, but the state of Vermont, Mr. I should say. Mr. Vermont. Mr. <laughs> Vermont, yeah. That's my state. Hey, home. you know what? And all this is staying in because, you know, we're going to knock the rust off. We're going to fight through it. All right, so let me see. I got, um, I got one here. Yeah, you're the first one. Go ahead. All right. A strange light called the Orb of the Valley, ugh, orbs, is <laughs> uh, said to float around the deep hollow of the remote lost nation area in the hills that make up the Bakersfield-Fairfield town line. The orb is roughly the size of a basketball and hovers above the ground and moves slowly through the woods. Is it a UFO, swamp gas, spirit, or something totally unknown? It may possess some sort of intelligence as it is able to navigate around trees and other obstacles and has been claimed that it has stopped to observe an unexpected bystander. What's Very an cool. unexpected bystander? I guess oh, well. somebody just traveling down the road, just get on I down, suppose. get on down the road. Uh, in 1848, a 25-year-old railroad worker named Phineas Gage was blowing up rocks to clear way for a new rail line in Cavendish, Vermont. He would drill a hole, place an explosive charge, then pack in sand using a 13-pound metal bar known as a tamping iron. But in this instance, the metal bar created a spark that touched off the charge. That, in turn, drove this tamping iron up and out of the hole through his left cheek, behind his eye socket, and out the top of his head. Ouch! Says Jack Horn, Jack Van Horn, an associate professor of neurology at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Gage didn't die, but the tamping iron destroyed much of his brain's left frontal lobe, and Gage's once even-tempered personality changed dramatically. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. Yeah. Half your, brain, half your brain's gone. Hell yeah. Okay. In Caledonia County, part of the Northeast Kingdom. Residents in Newark hear a mysterious sound. It is often described as an elusive, low-pitched humming resembling the distant drone of an engine. But no one knows what it is. Also, not everyone can hear it, even if they are sitting in the same room. Sounds like the towel's hum. It does. A lot of people claim they can't hear Jack. Mm -hmm. There is no electricity in the area, and even the hum occurred from a great distance away. It can still be heard during power outages. That is, if you're one of the people that can hear it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's all yeah. I can tell some, yeah. That's awesome. But see, a lot of the, ge the, geom the geometry of the Earth, there's a lot of crystals in this Earth and stuff like that can cause stuff like that. But then again, we won't dig into all that crap, but yeah. yeah. All that bullshit. But yep. um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even the fact that the, during power outages, that it's, it's still be heard, it's pretty interesting. Yep. All right, last one. Some folks call them devil cats, while others call them a beautiful creation of nature. Vermont history is full of accounts regarding mountain lions prowling the woods and forests of Vermont. Supposedly, the last catamount was shot in the town of Bernard in 1181. 
The species was all but exterminated by the end of the 19th century. Yet, catamount sightings persist, with the first recorded sighting near Craftsbury, Vermont in 1942. Since 1990, sightings have increased. Some believe that the state of Vermont knows of the catamount's existence, and there's a conspiracy or cover-up. Oh, sounds like your territory, James. Conspiracy. Damn right. According to the Vermont Department of Wildlife, there is no evidence supporting the existence of the legendary cat in the Green Mountains of Vermont. It's the government. Government covering it up. (laughs) Government. They always do. All right, but why don't we go ahead and get into your weird news of the day. Do it. Does it sound good to hear that again? It has been uh, a long time. Ugh. Been a very Getting long back time. Back in the groove. All right. Today's story is uh, from, of course, my favorite source, Metro.uk. You know these guys never let me down. Nope, never, never. The story is titled "Curious Story of the Man Who Tried to Mail Himself to Wales from Australia After Getting Homesick." <laughs> I love it. The story is dated 8 April of 2021. You know, that's just a couple days ago. A pensioner from Cardiff is looking for two Irishmen who helped him escape Australia by mailing him off in a wooden crate. Brian Robson was 19 years old when he decided to go ahead with his stupid plan to get him home to Wales in 1965. After 11 months down under, he was feeling desperately homesick, but the 40 pounds a month he was making working for Victorian Railways wasn't nearly enough to cover the 700-pound plane ticket. But after being talked into it for about a week, two Irish friends and colleagues, known to Brian only as Paul and John... <laughs> is this the Beatles, is this a Beatles that's uh, a, song or something? Half the Beatles, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mail myself home. <laughs> All right. Well, they helped pack him into a box the size of a mini refrigerator. That's not good. No. They nailed it shut and sent him off as cargo on a Qantas flight from Melbourne to London. At least that was the plan. Uh-oh, something oh. always goes wrong. Of course it does. Brian says he needed the help because Paul has access to a typewriter to fill out the paperwork to send him off to post. Oh, it's an important That's job. <laughs> yeah. He told the Irish Times, Paul really was 100% against it, but John said, don't worry about it, I'll persuade him. And so they both went ahead Jeez. and helped. Into the tiny box, Brian brought with him pillows, a torch, a torch, his suitcase, a book of Beatles songs, and two bottles. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Beatles songs. That, that's a coincidence, yeah. One for water and the other for urine. Yeesh. Nice. But don't, I guess you got to do it. Don't mix those up now. Exactly. Brian, now 75, was expecting a luxurious trip, but what should have been a 36-hour direct flight ended up as a four-day-long ordeal. Oh, my God. God, four days? Four stinking days. Good oh Lord. Oh, gosh. The Qantas flight was full, so the crate, labeled by the escapee as containing a quote-unquote computer, was put on a much slower Pan Am flight that ended up in Los Angeles. Oh, 
Oh, geez. Brian says the airplane's hold was both freezing cold and boiling hot, and that he struggled to breathe during the journey. I bet he did, because mm -hmm. in a cargo plane, there's no real pressurization inside the cargo deck. Not good. When the plane landed in Sydney, he was left upside down for 22 hours, despite several this side up labels on the crate causing <laughs> him to suffer blackouts. <laughs> ah, dang. What a dummy. What a dummy. After leaving Sydney and landing again, Brian thought he was finally in London. But after being carted off to a freight shed, he peeked through a hole in the chest and caught eyes with a frightened U.S. Customs official who thought there was a dead body inside. Oh, <laughs> he was then interrogated by the FBI, who wanted to make sure he wasn't a Cold War spy. <laughs> I don't think Once they were my box. Yeah, I don't think so either. Once they were satisfied he wasn't a threat, authorities decided not to press charges, instead flying him to London on a regular commercial flight. Brian's legs had seized up inside the box, so he had to recover in the hospital first before his journey. I bet. That's, mm -hmm. that's bad business. That is bad, yeah. Australia's then-acting Minister for Immigration, Leslie Burry, said the government, the government did not take any action against him. Brian says he had written to Paul and John to thank him for the help. I need someone help. I just <laughs> never mind. I must keep going. But never heard back from them. He remembers that the pair went to the school together in Ireland, although he wasn't quite sure where. The stowaway added, quote, "If I'd met them again, I'd just say to them, 'I'm sorry I got them into this, and that I missed them when I came back. I'd like to buy them both a drink.'" After returning to Wales, Brian spent his life working in retail and and will now tell his story in a book, The Crate Escape, <laughs> which is set Shut to come out up. in late April. Yep, so oh apparently it's coming out this month. A film depicting his near-fatal journey is also in the works. Oh, my God. Looking back at his plan, he told the BBC, It was bloody stupid. If my kids tried it, I would kill them. But it, <laughs> but it, was, <laughs> but it was a different time. And that, my friends, is the story. That That's awesome. Is a hilariously great story. It is. Yeah. I mean, I've heard. You know, you've always heard it. You've seen gagged in movies and stuff like that. But I never knew somebody actually tried it. And this was in '65. So, good lord. Well, I tell you what. The um, the idea of him in a in a big crate, like box crate, you know, popping out, uh, reminds me of how they shipped Richard Pryor to the kid in the toy. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Masturbates. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Great story, dude. Great story. Yep. All right. All right, bud. Let's get into the main topic then, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, today we're going to be discussing the lesser-known triangle, the Bennington Triangle, and the long-trail disappearances that have occurred within it. So, Nice! Yes, in the southwest corner of Vermont lies a lesser-known triangle that is centered on Glastonbury Mountain and lies within the cities of Bennington, Shaftesbury, and Somerset. The areas of Glastonbury and Somerset were once moderately thriving logging and industrial towns, but began declining towards the late 19th century and are now unincorporated ghost towns. The area was coined the Bennington Triangle by author Joseph A. Citro during a public radio broadcast in 1992. 
So it's a very recent uh, naming of that triangle. Much, much more recent than the, the Bermuda Triangle, of course, the most famous one, or the Devil's Triangle, which is in Japan. The triangle has a history that predates the colonialization of North America and persists to this day. Reports of a wide variety of phenomena, from ghosts to Bigfoot, UFOs, and interdimensional portholes are said to have occurred within this area. Native Americans considered Glastonbury Mountain cursed and used it strictly for burying their dead. Pet cemetery, anybody? Yeah, no shit. Yep. Uh, they believed the land to be cursed because all four winds met in that spot. Another myth attributed to the native people of Vermont is that they believed an enchanted stone among the cairns on top of the mountain could swallow a man whole. Ooh, enchanted stones, eh? Is that the Shankara stones by chance? No, that, that's they, they don't swallow you whole, I don't think. They just burn your hand. Yeah. They burn. <laughs> <laughs> you betrayed Shiva. Okay. Um, that's right. As reported by Davy Russell in X-Project Paranormal magazine, a person could stand on the rock to survey the area from the highest point and find themselves suddenly swallowed whole. That person would never be heard from again. Now I'm going to get into a couple of quick reports from that area before we get into the disappearances. Uh, the Bennington Monster, thought to be an Sweet. early Bigfoot or Sasquatch. The monster has been described as well over 1.8 meters or 6 feet tall, with hair from its head to its toes. The first sighting of the monster was reported in the early 19th century when it rushed a stagecoach on a washed out road. <laughs> the beast I love the way they write this stuff sometimes. It cracks me up. It rushed the stagecoach. Rushed the stagecoach. The beast knocked the stagecoach on its side and fled into the dark with a roar. Luckily no one was harmed. That makes me think it was just drunk and it just ran into it <laughs> and realized what it did and, and took off. Oh jeez. Oh, now, uh, in 1967, a somehow less pleasant monster began to appear on the mountain. The wild man of Glastonbury lived in a cave near Somerset. Unfortunately for everyone, he didn't stay there because reports say that he would descend into nearby Glastonbury and other settlements in the Bennington Triangle to harass women. Now, now see, I was born in 67. This sounds dangerously like me. Living in a cave, harassing women. <laughs> uh oh. Let's, we, in, we in trouble. Let's see if this next part is like you. He accomplished this by pulling open his ratty coat to reveal his nude body while waving around a pistol to scare off anyone who might want to stop him. <laughs> Is that you, James? <laughs> no. No. I would, no. Uh, Is that your pistol or are you happy to see me? Oh, it's both. Okay. Exactly. Luckily, that seems to be all he did before fleeing back to his cave. In 1892, a sawmill worker, Henry McDowell, drunkenly bludgeoned a co-worker to death with a rock after he heard voices telling him to attack. He was committed to an asylum but managed to escape and vanish. Only five years after that murder, another strange one followed nearby. John Harbour was a prominent Woodford citizen who went into Brickford Hollow just south of Glastonbury to hunt. He was shot by persons unknown but was found with his fully loaded gun just next to him and seemed to have been dragged several yards. Those who investigated his death were left wondering why he was so easily shot with a fully loaded gun and why his assailant would bother to put his gun next to him after dragging him. This murder has gone unsolved and will likely stay that way. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Weird, weird stuff. Yeah, I'm liking it. Okay, so now let's get into the long trail disappearances. Now the triangle has a history of 30 to 40 disappearances over the years. 
but five disappearances which took place between 1945 and 1950 have fascinated people more than any others. While some people suspect a serial killer, others point the finger at paranormal activity. Of course they do. Of course, blame them ghosts. That's right, them boogers. But the truth is, no one really knows why these people have gone missing in the Bennington Triangle. Let's get into what has since become known as the Long Trail Disappearances. Now, for a little bit of history, the Long Trail is a hiking trail located in Vermont, running the length of the state. It is the oldest long distance trail in the United States, constructed between 1910 and 1930 by the Green Mountain Club. The Long Trail spans 439 kilometers or 273 miles through Vermont and ends at the edge of Canada. If taken in one go, the Long Trail lives up to its names because it would take from two to four weeks to complete the entire trek. Nice. One thing that hikers usually don't know about at all is the Bennington Triangle, which overlaps the Long Trail. Of course. So, missing person number one, Mitty Rivers. Great name, by the way. I love, love that name. Mitty Rivers. Mitty Rivers. On November 12, 1945, a 74-year-old hunting guide was leading a party of four other hunters around the southwest woods of Glastonbury Mountain. The group was heading back to camp when Mitty pulled ahead outpacing the rest of the group. The other men figured Mitty was just quickening his pace to get back to camp and they would see him there. But when they arrived, Mitty was nowhere to be found. They hadn't seen any sign of him on the trail before reaching camp. Though he was older, the group knew Mitty was very familiar with the area and he probably just got turned in the wrong direction and he'd either find his way back to the camp or back down the mountain. Yet after a few days, Mitty never showed up. Soon, more than 300 concerned locals and U.S. Army soldiers dispatched from Massachusetts Fort Davins combed through the vast wilderness for eight days, turning up not a single shred of evidence as to the whereabouts of rivers. That sounds like, yeah, that sounds like our boy Thomas. It does, exactly like him, yeah. Same kind of thing, mm -hmm. older gentleman, you know, ventured with off. With a group. Of course, that was, he was on a hunting trip. He was with a group, and he wandered off and did his thing, and he just vanished, and they could never find exactly. him. Exactly, yeah. It sounds just like wow. Tom. Authorities and those who know him were perplexed. How did this man, who knew the area of Glastonbury like the back of his hand, disappear without a trace? All right. Disappearance number two, and probably one of the most well-known of, of the disappearances, is Paula Jean Weldon. Now, everything that I'm about to read, I got from this great website called historybyday.com. So it all comes from there. On Sunday, December 1st, 1946, a year after Minnie Rivers disappeared, 18-year-old Paula Jean Weldon finished her job at the Commons at Bennington College. She had worked two shifts in the dining hall and then went back to her dorm room and changed her clothes. She told her roommate that she was going out for a hike. Her roommate later reported that she remembered Paula saying how she was feeling a bit tad depressed in the previous days. Paula had told her roommate that she was homesick as she hadn't been home for Thanksgiving for unknown reasons. Paula was the eldest of four daughters, was 5'5 and weighed 123 pounds. She had a grayish scar on her left knee, a vaccination mark on her right thigh, and a small scar under her left eyebrow. The last day she was seen by anybody, Paula was wearing a red jacket with a fur-trimmed hood, blue jeans, and white sneakers. She had a small gold wristwatch with a narrow black band 
and it was 50 degrees when Paula left the campus, which explained her light clothing, but by the evening temperatures dropped dramatically. By Monday morning, it was 9 degrees in Bennington. 9 degrees. That is cold. Yipe. Paula was seen by a few other students heading towards Route 67A. Danny Fager, who was at the gas station across from the college's entrance, saw Paula walking down the road at about 2.30 p.m. Lewis Knapp picked her up at around 2.45 and drove her as far as his home on Route 9, which was about three miles from the trail where she planned to hike. Sometime around 4 p.m., Ernest Whitman and three of his friends came out of a camp in Brickford Hollow and saw Paula. She asked Ernie about the length of the trail before she headed towards a bridge that led to the trail. Other students claimed to have seen her in the area of Fay Fuller Camp, which was further up the trail, but the reliability of the reports aren't clear. Now, at this point, she's already been seen by a bunch of people already. So we've got a ton of witnesses seeing her go towards that way, but then nobody finds her. With darkness soon falling, Paula was on the trail with inadequate clothing and no supplies whatsoever. The teenager was never seen again. Okay, that's that's just... It's kind of fishy. It's moronic. Or it's, I mean, or it's purposeful. I was a teenage hiker. Mm-hmm. I did a ton of hiking as a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, lessons learned. You never go without supplies. I'm sorry. You just don't do it. Well, at least, at least minimal supplies, water and something. But you know what? Some people just don't know. That's all right. But it's just. Uh, well, there's also the, wow. the possibility that, that it was on purpose. I mean, if she was depressed and she was feeling um, bad, she might have purposely gone without supplies in a. Uh, of a weird suicide attempt yeah but damn okay after paula didn't show up to her classes on monday december 2nd the director of missions mary garrett called state's attorney william jerome jr to the college by noon paula's father william was also called in someone remembered how paula once said that she would like to go visit the everett cave at mount anthony so a man named henry Steele, who worked as a guide along with some students headed to the cave that afternoon to search for her, but they found nothing. A local taxi driver, Abe Ruskin, told authorities that he took a student to the bus station on Sunday afternoon, but he wasn't able to positively identify her as Paula. No. There were a n- so they found something, just not... Uh... Yeah, there are reports all over this town of her being seen in different places, or at least someone that looks like her being seen in different places. So it's... I think that adds to the yeah. fact that they couldn't find her because they had so many different leads in, in different directions. Makes sense. There were a number of possible buses that she could have taken, but the clerks at the station didn't remember anyone of her description, and it was a busy day. There was a waitress at a local restaurant, however, called Ora Teletier, who served on a girl matching Paula's description at 9.30 p.m. that Sunday night. So 9.30 p.m. Uh, in the restaurant when she was supposed to have been on the trail. So again... Kind of iffy. Yeah. Aura, the waitress, said the girl was with a young man about 25 years old who was drunk and abusive. When he came to the counter, the girl signaled to Aura to come over. She asked Aura how far it was to Bennington, Vermont, and even asked the waitress where she was. She told Aura that she had to get to Bennington and that she had arrived there with $1,000, but it was all gone now. I don't think this is Paula. This doesn't sound like Paula at all. No. Because Paula knew where she was. I mean, she was she might have been depressed, but she wasn't like schizophrenic or psychotic or anything. She knew where she was. And some teenager with $1,000 ain't going to be... You know, yeah. And, you know, 
I mean, and they ain't gonna be depressed. No, and especially in 1946. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna say in 46, that's that's a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money now. A lot of money. A lot of money now, but it's a ton of money back then. Yeah. Aura said the girl had not been drinking, but seemed a bit dazed. On Monday evening, the media reported about Paula being missing. Authorities in New York and Massachusetts were alerted, and photographs started circulating. Since no one knew where Paula went, no formal search or rescue effort began yet. On Tuesday, December 3rd, searches were being carried out on the college campus in the section of the Long Trail that led to the Glastonbury Fire Station, which crosses Route 9. Many people were involved in the search, including the superintendent of the college, a hunter named Herman Spencer, fellow college students, Boy Scouts, members of the Green Mountain Club, and 30 others from the area. At 5.30 p.m. that Tuesday, Ernie Whitman, night watchman for the Banner newspaper, saw the photo of Paula on the front page. He told reporter Pete Stevenson that he spoke to that same girl at about 4 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon in Woodford. He was the one that Paula asked for directions about the length of the trail. Three residents of Woodford confirmed that they saw the girl walking towards the long trail. She was last seen by a camp near Hunter's Rest. Three men on a smaller search for Paula walked towards Glastonbury, but the going was tough due to the three inches of snow that fell Sunday night, the night Paula went missing. So not only was she inadequately dressed, but she had to fight through three inches of snow to walk that trail that night. Yeah, I'm thinking we got somebody here who wanted to vanish. Mm -hmm, I think so too. It was unlikely that Paula could have reached Hunter's Rest because she would have had too much trouble crossing the stream and she was only wearing sneakers. The camp was owned by a man named William Lazon, who reported that three servicemen passed through earlier on Sunday and they too weren't dressed appropriate for the trail. The men left a suitcase with Lazon, and the men never returned for the suitcase and so the men on the search opened it up and looked through it. The servicemen were named J.W. Carroll, William Watts, and M. Golder. Lawson also said how a deer hunter named Mitty Rivers had disappeared from his camp a year prior. The authorities came to the conclusion that there must have been two girls around Long Trail on Sunday. Paula and another young woman who was with a man who had a car. They both fit the description except the other woman was taller than Paula which might have caused some confusion among the witnesses including the waitress. By Wednesday night, the college president issued a statement saying that the authorities suspected foul play. They believe Paula's body had been hidden. The searches for Paula grew larger and more elaborate by Wednesday afternoon, including five aircraft as well as 120 men from the state guard. There were 500 searchers involved at this point. To keep things or Golly. yeah, that's a ton of people. 500 people and five aircraft. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And they didn't still still didn't find her. To keep things organized, each searcher carried confetti to drop to make sure each area was searched and not overlapped. It's pretty smart. Yeah, it is very much so. Then a faculty member from Bennington College found footprints that might have been made by sneakers. I'm surprised they were still there after all this time. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they were made when the ground was soft and then it froze. So that would make sense, but supposedly, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's about the only way. But that was the only thing remotely connected to Paula. The 500 searchers found nothing. The authorities believe Paula was not in the area and a $500 reward was offered to anyone who had any information leading to Paula. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it was in 1940. 
in, in 46. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hell yeah. yeah. A lot of money. Hell yeah. Despite the account given by Paula's roommate, who reported that Paula was depressed, girls in Paula's dorm said she was extraordinarily happy on Saturday night. And so they suspected she might have decided to make a big change in her life and use the hike as a diversion. Well, I mean, well, hell, if you're going to do that and just vanish and decide you're going to go somewhere, you, I, you know, I don't know. Damn teenagers. <laughs> On December 15th, the search for Paula stopped. The following May, when the snow melted, Paula's father organized a two-day search, but no trace of his daughter was found. At first, he was content with how thorough the authorities' searches were. But by now, he criticized their lack of sophisticated methods in this case. His it's 1946 for God's sake. I mean, and they have again 500 people, two, five air, aircrafts. That's pretty sophisticated for yeah. 40, uh, 46. For one missing person, yeah. yeah, that's a lot of resources. His complaints were the catalyst for the founding of the Vermont State Police just seven months later. Paula's body, no, Paula's body, nor her possessions were ever found, and the case remains open to this day. She just vanished. I think she wanted to start a whole she new did. life. And just... She decided to go somewhere else. That's probably why she asked how long the trail was. She just kept going. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a good alibi. And the fact that there are so many people who saw her is also a good alibi for her. For people to think that she went on the trail and then she double backed and went somewhere else. True that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Very, very interesting. Because, yeah, like you said, a young girl like that with no supplies wouldn't survive a winter day. Mm -mm. Like that in three inches like of that. snow? They'd, nope. They'd be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she'd be done. Somebody had to pick her up because she was, yeah. James E. Tedford also spelled as Tefford or Tetford, a veteran, was the third person to disappear. He went missing on December 1st, 1949, exactly three years after Paula Whedon, or Weldon, I should say. Tedford was a resident of the Bennington Soldiers' Home. He had been in St. Albans visiting relatives and was returning home on a local bus when he vanished. According to witnesses, Tedford got on the bus and was still on the bus at the last stop before arriving in Bennington. Somewhere, between the last stop in Bennington, Tedford vanished. His belongings were still in the luggage rack, and an open bus timetable was on his vacant seat. The fourth person to vanish was eight-year-old Paul Jeffson. On October 12, 1950, Jeffson had accompanied his mother in a truck. She left her son unattended while she went to feed some pigs. His mother was gone for about an hour. When she returned, her son was nowhere in sight. Search parties were formed to look for the child. Nothing was ever found, although Jeffson was wearing a bright red jacket that should have made him more visible. According to one story, bloodhounds tracked the boy to a local highway where, according to local legend, four years earlier, Paula Weldon had disappeared. Bloodhounds, huh? I mean, if she was gone for Can't an hour and, and he, he did probably got bored, got out of the truck, and then got lost. Yep. I love bloodhounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The fifth and last disappearance occurred 16 days after Jeffson had vanished. On October 28, 1950, Frida Langer, 53, and her cousin, Herbert Elsner, left their family campsite near the Somerset Reservoir to go on a hike. During the hike, Langer slipped and fell into a, st a stream. She told Elsner if he would wait, she would go back to the campsite, change clothes, and catch up with him. When she did not return, Elsner made his way back to the campsite and discovered Langer had not returned and that nobody had seen her since they had left. Over the next two weeks, five searches were conducted involving aircraft, 
helicopters, and again up to 300 searchers. No trace of Linger was found during the search. On May 12, 1951, her body was found near Somerset Reservoir in an area that had been extensively searched seven months previously. Damn. No cause of death could be determined because of the condition of her remains. Wow. Yeah, out there, I bet animals got to it, and, you know, DK or whatever. But it was in an area that had been searched, so somebody, I think somebody put the body there after it was done with it. I think, it, booyah, I was just going to say that we've discussed this before in other missing person cases, mm -hmm. that once an area is searched, the perpetrator knows that area has been searched, so they'll dump the body there. Yep. So that they're like, okay, well, they won't go back here and look because they've already looked. Exactly. So then they won't find it. Ha ha. But, but he did. Yeah. yeah. But it's probably the dude that she was with. Probably. I I, 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 I mean, mean, I'd be a good, uh, good theory. Yeah. I mean, I know it's back in the 40s and they took people more at their word back then, probably. But yeah, you'd have to prove it. It's like, look, you tell you, she, I'm going to go back to camp, but she never made it back. And then she bit, disappeared after that. You were the only one to see her. But I think there were, you know, uh, yeah, I, that's that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. But you, you would assume at the know, very least cops would still have uh, thoroughly interrogated Elsner. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. You know, back in the 40s, that's when they got that, they put that light over your head and blow that bright light in your face. And you're behind a table and they're screaming at you. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> the classic uh, where, where? interrogation you see on TV. Yeah. That's it. Linger was the last person to disappear and the only one whose body was found. No direct connections have been identified that tie these cases together other than the general geographic area and time period. Multiple theories have been put forth regarding these disappearances. In all the research that has been done to answer the maddening questions of the Bennington Triangle, some practical answers have been found. So let's go over these now. One explanation is hypothermia. Temperatures on the mountain can drop very low, and disappearances did all happen in the winter. When experiencing hypothermia, people might engage in terminal bur burrowing. Burrowing. This is a survival behavior that drives people to find someplace small and remote to huddle. It gets people out of the wind and may provide enough warmth to help slow the process of freezing to death, but it usually kicks in too late and just makes it hard for the person to be found. It, why would you not rejoin your party and tell them, hey, I'm freezing to freaking death. Let's build a fire. Let's do something. It's the dumbest things to run off by yourself, you know, in perilous situations like that. That just don't make any sense. But then again, not everybody, you know, uses common sense when they goes and go in the woods. You know, we've, you know, we've run into that before too on some of our other stories. And that's, that's assuming they're with the with the party. I mean, Paula wasn't with the party; she was by herself. That's um, true. The Jepson boy was with with his mother, but she was out of the truck for an hour. So, Mr. Rivers, yeah, Mr. Rivers. I mean, yeah, he should have. But then again, I, who knows? I mean, it's it's hard to say what's going through these people's minds when they're when they're in the. Um... And Mr. Tedford, I mean, he vanished on a bus. He wasn't even in a trail. He was on a bus. On a and bus. Somehow disappeared between the first stop, the last stop, and and then Bennington. He just disappeared off the bus. It's yeah. Aliens. Aliens. It's gotta, it's gotta be aliens. It's, it's it, yep, taking people all the yep. time. Beamed him up. Another explanation has to do with the area's history as a mining town. The mountainside is littered with unmarked mine shafts that may cause hikers to, who go off trail to plummet to their deaths. Both of these can explain why the missing people were never found. One more complicating factor is the odd wind pattern on the mountain. Most places have a wind pattern that influences how plants grow. 
We don't consciously acknowledge it, but this pattern of growth is one of the ways we orient ourselves when outdoors. Glastonbury Mountain has no consistent wind pattern, so plants grow in odd ways. Many modern hikers have found it difficult navigating the mountain for this very reason, and it is the basis for the Native American myth about the four winds. Some of these help explain why the missing people were never found, but there are still loose ends. If the people perish with hypothermia or fall, why was Langer moved back into the open months later? Why did Jepson's trail end at the highway? And that doesn't explain Tedford disappearing off the bus. Yep. Maybe the most practical answer is not all five of the Bennington cluster died in the same way. Some may have met with a killer while others burrowed or fell, but if so, why did the disappearances span only five years and stop so abruptly? Very interesting, Very but you know what? That is what makes this stuff so cool. It is unfortunate when lives are lost and people disappear like that. It's devastating to the families and stuff like that. It makes for a cool but story. Good God, is it cool and interesting mm -hmm. how you know how this kind of stuff happens. Yeah. And there's no explanation for it. I mean, I eat that stuff Me up. Too. I love it. Now, there have been you a know. couple of recent encounters that people have published. Chad Abramovich of the website Obscure Vermont, he reported on a trip taken to the mountain saying, Myself and a few friends departed in his pickup truck and drove up the bumpy forest road into a strange clearing in the middle of the hills. Here, underneath summer humidity, we found old cellar holes almost entirely hidden by tall grasses beneath the shade of gnarled apple trees. Shortly after this, Abramovich and his group experienced a sudden drastic change in the weather. It was a sunny July afternoon when they started, but a torrential thunderstorm quickly appeared. The group was stranded for some time but finally managed to make it back to the flats. When they escaped the downpour, they found that the surrounding area was bone dry. Locals later confirmed that no thunderstorm had passed through their area. Crazy, Holy crazy stuff. Damn, and cellar holes. Yeah, mm -hmm. cellar holes, yeah. Like dug for cellars, but the houses are no longer there, mm -hmm. or the houses were never built, maybe. Something came through and blew the house away. Holy shit. Yeah. Robert Singley a music composition teacher at Bennington College and an experienced hiker became lost on the mountain in 2008. He took a trail he knew well to nearby Bald Mountain and then used the same trail to go back. However, the well-known trail didn't lead where it should have. According to Singley, he walked five miles before realizing he should have reached his car already. Just as he became concerned, a heavy fog rolled in and the whole trail became hopelessly dark. Holy crap. He went to a maple tree that he felt called to him from the fog and tried to start a fire. Every stick he reached for turned out to be an animal bone. This What? <laughs> this would have been distressing. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. This would have distressed most people, but Singley was only upset about his fiance. He imagined she was worried sick. He finally managed to light a fire and huddled by it through the night. In the morning, he found that he had somehow ended up on the other side of the ridge from his car. And luckily he made huh. it back to tell the tale. Man, well, I'll tell you what, that, that can, that can happen. Uh, if, you know, if he was familiar with the trail, it was. you know, he, that is strange because I've hiked many trails, uh, in the mountains and I know them very well. And I know exactly where to go. Mm -hmm. And then when I come back, but all of a sudden the trail, he just kept walking and ended Made a wrong turn somewhere, maybe. Some... Just didn't subconsciously did something wrong. What I really find interesting is maybe that... he was. Go ahead. Maybe he was jamming on his iPod or something. It was 2008, or so yeah, maybe he was. 
wasn't paying attention to where he was walking. He's just strolling and jamming. But it was a trail that he he'd hiked on many times before, so it's almost like you know muscle yeah. muscle memory, you know. Absolutely, yeah. So what I find interesting is that other than the the five that happened in, in the time frame, um, one of them, or at least two of them, and then these two, both have weird occurrences with the weather. Like yeah, uh, Paula Weldon had the snowstorm. Um, I think Jepsen was also during winter. But then you've got uh, Chad uh, Abramovich who um, had that sudden thunderstorm and then Singley who had the fog. All weird weather patterns that rolled in during this time. That's friggin' neat. Yeah. That makes me want to go. Yes. It's part, of, it's part of our trip. Part of our state of fear road trip we're going to take at some point. We need to go check out the, have to at some point. the Bennington yep. Triangle. we got to go check that out and hopefully not get lost. Yeah, maybe we can get on Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so that's the story of the Bennington Triangle and the Long Trail Disappearances, man. That is very cool. Yeah, crazy stuff, very, right? Very, very cool. Now, I have been through Vermont, and there are no major highways. Everything's winding roads. Okay. There's no straight, you know. I think there was like one interstate, and that was it. Oh, wow. And it took it took us forever to get across the state, because we're talking hairpins, left, right. I mean, absolutely gorgeous country, but yes, tons of woods, wow. thousands of places to get lost. If you get lost in some of these places, God knows they probably couldn't find yeah. you. So I can see how this kind of stuff could happen, because even back then it was even less developed, less explored. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's very easy for somebody to disappear. Plus, they don't have the techniques. Even if there's 500 people, they still don't have the techniques that they have today, mm-hmm. you know, they got thermal imaging now. They've got all kinds of stuff they you got can drones use. Back and all then, kinds it was yeah. sight of eyesight and dogs. You know, and if there was any precipitation, your your scent is going to get smothered out. Yeah. You know? So and in the 40s, man, it was it was just as probably wildlife or wild as it was you know prior to that. I'm sure it was pure wilderness and just yeah. Uh, you know, uh, not a lot of settlement. No, not yep. a, no. Very cool, yeah. man great story yeah i thought so too man it's very interesting when i was reading about all this because i was like i hadn't heard before before i mean we, we covered the bridgewater triangle of course there's the Bermuda triangle there's the uh devils but i'd never heard of the bennington um and it was a very very and, and again you know much like with the um the reservoir we covered uh previously where they had the the series yeah. of just of deaths there this was sort of a similar Utah, thing. Yeah, yeah sort of a similar thing but instead of deaths it's disappearances so i just i just love when there's these when these uh have these uh certain amount of like events that happen with a certain time frame it just it 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 fascinates me because there's something going on during that time frame that's different something up yeah that's right Mm -hmm. so you are correct sir all right but well why don't you tell people at home where else they can find us and all the good stuff that we have going on absolutely all right well you know as always you can find us on the the major three we are on twitter we are on instagram and we are on facebook uh our instagram following is skyrocketing i love it we're over 3100 followers now thank y'all for the support it's pretty great twitter twitter's looking healthy uh especially with the fact like i said things have been a little slow for us lately we've been dealing with life and all that we appreciate the continued support uh our downloads are increasing you know stuff's starting to pick up even when we're not putting nothing Mm -hmm. out so now that we're getting back in track give you all some good stuff looking forward to it oh yeah uh, don't forget our pay don't forget our patreon patreon.com forward slash state of fear uh we have our t public page if you want to go get state of fear merchandise good stuff we have there. About three or four logos you go to tpublic.com search state of fear find us on apple podcast google podcast skype skype i always say you always skype. say skype yeah i do i always say skype you guys know what i'm talking about i'm talking about <laughs> spotify 
YouTube, anywhere you look for podcasts, we'll be there. And, so, and send us along to your friends. Your friends might be interested in the podcast. Please. So, so share us share us, and rate and review us on Apple, please. And now that you said that, real quick, I'll toss in one more tidbit. We still have some of our vintage 1996 we do. X-Files postcards to give away. Uh, so if you want to give us a review, uh, take a screenshot and email that to stateoffearpodcast at gmail.com. You will receive a fine X-Files postcard vintage signed by the both of us, thanking you for your efforts and appreciate your support. Absolutely. We just sent one to brand new listener, Leonard. Thank you, Leonard, for your your uh Review, we appreciate y'all, and your card is on your way. Way to go, Leo! Yo! All right, James, well, this was a lot of fun, but I'm looking forward to the next state and the next topic we have going on. What do you say we can head over there? Uh, let's get on down the road, brother. What do you Let's say? do it, man. Mm-hmm.